June 17th, and we're at Lesson 29, as we continue our study in Matthew, and we're pressing right along here, looking at the Beatitudes, and I've got quite a bit of information to cover this morning. I'm not going to go full speed. If I get through, I get through. If I don't, we'll finish up at the end. Hey, Rob, come in, and uh, we'll just see what, what we have this morning. And we can begin this morning by reading this simple verse from Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, let's stop right there and ask the question in order to get everybody kind of focused this morning. If you're not kind of focused on the main point this morning, and I'll just ask you plainly, have you ever been in need of mercy? Mercy, and to understand that need requires that you have had a moment where you realize that there is a problem, that you're guilty, that you're kind of, you know, outside the realm there, eyes are focused upon you, perhaps, maybe it's just your own heart convicting you about your thoughts or your words or your actions or the lack thereof. And there's an admission, there's an understanding that you stand guilty before God. Or that you've, and could be one and the same, but that you've hurt someone else. You've been reckless in your comments. You've been negligent in your efforts at ministry. You've been unresponsive in whatever way. And you almost immediately have that awareness that, well, Okay, I'm guilty. Uh, I missed the mark. I didn't do what I should have done. I got off into the flesh. I did this, that, or the other. At any rate, uh, I know I'm in need of mercy. I'm in need of mercy. Now, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there, certainly because we're all human. We've been there as believers. We've been there from time to time. And I understand and believe that those, those times in a believer's life should be few and far between. But at the same time, we always have this awareness about our culpability. Because we know, just as the Bible says, that at our very, very best, the very best that we can bring to Christ, in the words of Isaiah, is a filthy. Okay, we have to have that. And that's tough. That's a tough understanding for most other religions because they focus upon the goodness of man, the, the potential that's within man. And yet we as believers are encouraged to remember our total dependency upon Christ, our total dependency upon the fullness of His Word, the presence uh, of His Holy Spirit within us that we might be all that we can be, and yet we know that that will never happen and it does not happen if we get into a position where we're operating outside of the power and presence of Jesus Christ. It's an all-encompassing reality for us. And when we choose, we choose to step out of that for whatever reason, whether we've allowed our emotions to, or our desires to become worldly for a moment, or we've just literally been duped through a spiritual battle that's going on within us 
You know, that happens to people who want to serve the Lord and who are busy doing that. One way or the other, we've realized that we are once again in need of mercy. Mercy from our Heavenly Father. And that happens. He loves us. He cares for us. We stop and we reflect upon the fact that our sin debt is paid. We know that. And yet, we want to come before Him not out of uh, an effort to restore because that can't change, but our fellowship, that, that truly personal aspect of our existence with Him is a fellowship. And you've heard me say it over and over again, it is very relational. And we need to view it that way. Because our sins are always first and foremost against Christ. They're first and foremost always against Him in every situation. And we cry out for mercy. The Greek word is eliamon, and it relates to and often means that uh, which is demonstrated in compassion or benevolence, benevolent mercy. Uh, It involves both thought and action. Okay? Both thought and action. And it stems from that basic word elios, which simply means mercy. And that's what you find in the latter part of that verse. They shall receive mercy. That is the root word there. We alluded to the fact that these first four Beatitudes, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, they deal entirely with what you might refer to as inner principles that we've looked at. We looked at poor in spirit. We looked at those who mourn, those who respond in meekness after understanding their sin and their need for mercy. And then they begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is what we looked at last week. We keep those four right there in a package. They deal with inner principles, if you will. They reflect the changes that's going on, that which is initiated in us, and finally comes to fruition as our new heart, our new desires are manifested specifically in our hunger and thirst for what God has for us. The Word of God, the power of Him within us. That becomes a very noticeable reality in our life. The last four, which we're getting into, 7, 8, 9, and 10, are what we would identify as outward manifestations of those attitudes. Understanding fully that something has to happen within us first. Something has to happen within us. The Word of God must take root. And we've gone back and looked at the application, the the hunger and thirst, we looked at this application both for those who don't know Christ, who are hungering and thirsting for His presence in their life, they've dealt with their sin, and then for the believer who continue to hunger and thirst, we actually identified some of those words that said, look, this is a continual process in your life, and that manifests the validity of it. It doesn't come and go. It's not something that you experience once in your life. Oh, I remember a time in my life when, you know, as as we used to say, I was really on fire for God, you know that phrase. But not so now, you know, I'm more mature now. I had a guy tell me once who uh, claimed that he was a a true believer. He said, you know, I live in the real world now. Well, where did you live before? I thought you stepped over into the real world. He had stepped out of the real world and he was blind. I had a friend this week tell me about a local fellowship that I'm familiar with where I live, where some of the church leaders, young people, some of the church leaders and their wives, 
had posted some information on the Facebook or whatever about their activities over the weekend, which included drunkenness, and they were celebrating this. And one of the individuals had written on there, well, but, but Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives. What are we teaching, folks? And we know that that's not consistent with the Word of God. It's not consistent. We cry out for mercy, and we cry out in our prayers for others to cry out in mercy because we know that that is what they need in their life. The expression of mercy to others is essential to having a righteousness that, as the Word says, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. So we're talking about something that's tangible, remember? Something that deals with our own abilities, our own actions. Not not just a quality within us, but something that's being expressed. It's something that's identifiable. People should be able to see the people of God and know that they are different. That something has happened within them. Something has transpired within them. And when it is a true manifestation of God's Spirit within us, the presence of Christ, it's identical. Identical, is that a word? It's identifiable. It's identifiable. It's the very presence of God being lived out. It's all that light and, and salt that we talk about. It's the hope of the world. It's the power and the presence of Christ within us that's being demonstrated. This is what gives our life meaning. Listen, if you're not wrapped up in that, if that's not what you're about, do you follow what I'm saying? Christ living in us, Christ changing us, and that power being used to change other people, I ask you this morning, then what is your life about? And what will you have to lay before Christ? What do you have to give him? Thank you, brother. Sit right there. Sit very close. Okay, that's all right. (laughs) Rob says nothing, and he's right. Christ said it. We'll repeat it. Without me, you can't do anything. So let's just live there. You want to? Let's just live right there. But it's not a dormant existence. It's not a dormant effort. It is an active effort. It's moving upon what we know. And you and I often believe the lie that, well, I don't know everything, and I'm not equipped, I'm not this, I'm not that. Well, yes, you are. All that remains is do you have enough faith to put one foot in front of the other and begin to minister in the name of Jesus Christ? This is what your life as a believer is to be about. In Matthew 9.13, Jesus told a group, He said, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion or mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you remember that conversation? And He was trying to teach them that it's not about merit. And it's not about justice. God takes care of the justice. We're not the determiners of that. From our our perspective, it's about compassion. It's about mercy because we have experienced that. And that's the thing that continues to run through any understanding of mercy as the Bible talks about it. We have to have had that experience of knowing that we personally need mercy. That's our motivation. 
And that we have received that mercy. Well, why? Because we know that it's necessary. We know that it works. We know that it's life-changing to go before God in need of mercy and then to experience God's goodness and grace and, and mercy in our life. And that's what we want for others. And what he's doing there, Christ, he's referring to Hosea 6.6, which says virtually that same thing. And I'm sure in your Bible, that's in the, the small capital letters you'll see there. That's in Matthew 9. And then later in Matthew 12, verse 7, big deal with Jesus, I guess, because he refers to it again. Because he says, but if you had known what this means, desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And this is where he was dealing with the religious crowd in this controversy over working on the Sabbath and laying uh, or laboring on the Sabbath and meeting needs on the Sabbath. And he explained that to them. And he's saying your thinking is all wrong. You've got it all wrong here. It's always right to be merciful. To be merciful. But we're going to look at what mercy means in just a minute and what it doesn't mean. Because the world is confused on it. It's confused. As we move along, we'll discover that there's a couple of passages in Matthew here that are truly key to understanding this particular beatitude. We would go to, and I'm not going to go through and teach these, but I just want to mention them. You might want to jot these down and look at them later. You'd want to write down chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, where he's teaching on literally on acts of compassion toward the poor. This is a response. Remember, we said that this was an active word so we have that and then in chapter 18 of matthew but uh, which we most often identify with you know church discipline and all but in verses 21 through 35 you have the parable of the unforgiving servant you're familiar with that right the guy who received such a a magnanimous act of mercy in his life from the king a, a debt he literally could not pay and we could get into the thousands and thousands of dollars he owed. You know, it was unpayable debt. He was relieved of that debt for mercy's sake. And then he's the one that goes out and grabs a guy who owes him money by the throat and shakes him and pay this, this small amount. Christ told this story because it reveals an attitude. It reveals an attitude which manifests that there has not been a change in these individuals. Of course, he's talking to the religious elite there as well. Because he says in verse 33, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? How is it possible? How is it possible that a person could experience the mercy of God in their life? I mean, an unpayable debt, a wrong, if you will, that's done. And certainly if you're applying it to salvation, many, many wrongs, many sins ultimately, which is our willingness to turn away from God and to embrace the world. But to receive forgiveness for that and then run off and act like that, to not be merciful and benevolent toward another person, how could we do that? So it makes the point again, and you see it linguistically in the original language as you study it, you can't have one without the other. In other words, you can't demonstrate this kind of mercy unless you have received that kind of mercy. It is not normal. It is not human. Somebody might do it for the wrong motivation. This, this king here, even in the parable, could have done it 
for, for political capital. His motivation could have been wrong. But Christ uses the example to teach us that if we've experienced mercy, then mercy to others is going to flow. It's going to flow. Proverbs 14.21 He who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. And then the, uh, in, what is it? the uh, Septuagint, it reads, Blessed is the one who has mercy on the poor. From Proverbs. John Calvin said, and I like this, They are blessed who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also take on other people's troubles. To help them in distress, freely to join them in their time of trial, and as it were, to get right into their situation that they may gladly expend themselves on their, the other person's, assistance. Is that not what mercy is? And even in Calvin's day, that was what was looked upon and valued. That mercy, the reality of mercy, because it had been experienced in a person's life, had bolstered a person's efforts. It had served to energize them to be merciful to others. Ultimately, mercy is not simply knowing and being, which is necessary, but without a doubt, it is doing. It is doing. It's taking the time. It's putting, if, you will, if you'll bear it, le- legs on our prayers, legs on our desires, making ourselves available. So let's take some time and look at mercy's meaning. What does it mean? Hebrews 2.17, talking about Christ. Therefore, speaking of Him, He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He, Christ, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, as you know, means to satisfy you know a lot of times and i'll dare say virtually every time it's necessary for us to go through the gauntlet a bit right to go through the times of difficulty because we need mercy not just for our sins we need mercy because of our weaknesses you follow me the things that we know that we have to do, the things that we know that we have to bear up under. And we need God's mercy in order to do that. Why mercy? Why not grace? And we'll define the two in a little bit. But why not grace? Why mercy? How does mercy help us there? What is mercy compared to grace? There's a simple definition. We've talked about it before. Mercy is simply when I don't get what I deserve, right? How would that relate in situations that we're trying to decipher? We know what's required of us. We know what it's going to take. We just don't know if we have the emotional stability. We may not feel like we have the knowledge that we're not trained or whatever comes into our life. But we yet we know that we're called. We have the opportunity before us and we need to move on this. Why do we need God's mercy in that? And even if we're not 
weak because of a sin, we still have those tendencies to be, and you can't define it any other way, faithless. That's what it comes down to. We're just going to be faithless. When we look at what's stacked against us, it appears, I just can't do this. I need to step away from this. But we know that we can't. We can't. We need God's mercy not to be, if you will, unfaithful. To act in as, as though Christ doesn't have the strength. And He's not sufficient. His Word is not sufficient. His presence within us is not sufficient. The power of the Spirit, the fellowship of the church to help and encourage us is just simply not sufficient. We can't yield to that because it's not true. It is totally sufficient. Totally sufficient. And we need mercy. Grace, of course, being that if mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, grace is when we do get what we don't deserve. <laughs> and He pours out that bucket of grace to us. We love that, don't we? And we see that in action. It just thrills, thrills our heart. Christ is our example. He experienced what we experienced. Hebrews 4.4 tells us that. That He experienced what He experienced on our behalf. He's our example. He is compassion in action. We see it many, many times as we look throughout the Gospels and even in Acts as Paul reflects back on Christ's words and Christ's ministry. Mercy is simply meeting people's needs. Now, don't get that confused with the mantra that you hear in a lot of churches nowadays about just preaching to people's felt needs. Have you ever heard that phrase? We just, if as long as you preach to people's felt needs, everything will be fine. Well, Maybe. But you've got to go a little deeper than that, right? You've got to go a little deeper than that. You've got to help a person understand what their greatest need is. What their greatest need is. And it may not be their immediate physical illness. That may not be their greatest need. And only the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, can bring that, that type of light, can, sh- can shine that type of light and, and reveal the true problem, if you will, the greatest need that God needs to respond to, whether it's salvation or harboring sin of some type in a person's life. I pray that that's what we long for. In Jesus' day, there wasn't a lot of mercy shown, not by the religious crowd. And it was hard to be merciful from the religious crowd's perspective when you're really wrapped up in pride and self-righteousness and being judgmental, those kind of things. I love the, the, the study in Luke 15 about the prodigal son because what Jesus is doing there, he's, that whole thing there, His longest and most detailed parable is an effort to try and get the religious elite to understand the fact that they don't value mercy. They don't see a need for it. They don't understand grace. It's all about merit. It's all about being God reaching down and choosing them and making them what they are. And we know that there's... Some truth to that, but not like they see it. Not in, doesn't free them up to be whatever they want to be and live any way that they want. No, that doesn't work. But that's what, that's what we see. Christ tells that whole story for that same purpose. And He ends not just with the glory, you know, which it is about the, the joy in heaven over a person who repents. You see that? Christ set it up with those... First two parables, you know, the lost sheep and the lost coin. He set that up. 
And then he brings that older brother in there, which is representative of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their religious snobbery and so forth. Oh, and the language there, if you look and, and study, it's just, he's terrible. He's talking to his daddy, well, you did this and you did that. And that's, that's what he was, he's just being rude, okay? This son of yours, he wouldn't even say my brother, you know. You've done this. Throwing it back at God. And when it's God and Him alone who's supplied this infinite, wholly sufficient mercy and grace to us in our lives. A popular Roman philosopher, he referred to mercy, he said it was the disease of the soul. The disease, if you will, of the soul. And it was considered to be this, a supreme sign of weakness in a man, in an individual. We can see that reflected in, in Roman government, can't we? Certainly in the Roman army. In the Roman world, you had husbands and fathers and, and masters. And they had power of life and death over their wives, their children, their slaves. They did it this way, just like you see you know, in the movie Gladiator. Up or down? Oh, I did that backwards, didn't I? Up or down? <laughs> that was their society. Society did not breed attitudes of mercy and grace. And when Christ came and was, and was so antithetical to all this, we're not going to run in here. We're not going to run the Romans out. We're not going to make more swords. We're not going to uh, plan and plot and get them out of here because I am Messiah. That's not what happened. No, what happened at all? It was through submission. It was through yielding. It wasn't about outward change. It was initially about inward change. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And nobody can get it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And it begins by understanding that we need God's mercy in our life. When the scribes and Pharisees brought the adulterous woman to Jesus to see if He would agree to her stoning, to, her, to the justice. Of course, they were trying to get Him in a, in a spot there. What did he do? What did he go to? He confronted them with their hypocrisy, right? That dealt with them just being merciless. Because they, they were all guilty. And if not guilty of that, what she had done, guilty of something equal or worse, he lays it out there for them. And he deals with their merciless hypocrisy. John chapter 8. That's what we have. So how does mercy, how does it relate to forgiveness? How do we, what do we need to understand about that? It has much in common with forgiveness, but at the same time it's distinct from forgiveness, having mercy on someone and forgiving someone. The line is a little bit blurred, but we'll look at that. We understand that mercy is larger than forgiveness, that God gives mercy even when we don't sin. And because of that, we can do the same thing. We evaluate those times in our life when God has provided that very thing. He's kept us courageous. He's given us the right vision. He's strengthened us, as I, as I exampled earlier, to be faithful in difficult times as we go to Him. And we literally receive His mercy. We do that, and we thank Him for it.
If we've experienced that, we can share that with other people. And when it's embraced through what Christ has provided, then it yields its fruit. It does. But we must be willing to go there. How does mercy relate to love? I'm going to go through these. Well, forgiveness flows out of mercy, and mercy flows out of love. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, love came first, great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. And we see that it flows out of love. That is our motivation. And let me say it this way, a Christian type of love. An agape type of love. Not a love, if you will, in the loose use of the word, for on behalf of someone because of what they can do for you, for instance. Or for how it will look. Or maybe even be good for business and all that kind of thing. A perceived act of mercy. God knows the heart. God alone is the judge of those things. But we're talking about mercy being uh, spilled out into somebody's life because they don't deserve it. It's not about that. It's because we believe that when the, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the power and presence of God is manifested to others, that it can effect change in a person's life. And that's why we do it. That's why we do it. Mercy acts because of need. Love acts because of affection. Mercy is reserved for times of trouble most often. But love is constant. Love stays constant. So how does it relate to grace? Mercy is not, as we said, receiving what we deserve. And grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Hang on to that. Each of the pastoral epistles has a salutation in the front. You know, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. A salutation in the front that includes both grace, mercy, and peace. And Paul understood this. Mercy offers relief from punishment. Grace offers pardon for the crime. That helps us see it a little more clearly. Mercy would serve to eliminate pain. Grace cures the disease if you can follow those examples. MacArthur says in his commentary, when the good Samaritan bound up the wounds of the man who had been beaten and robbed, he showed mercy, did he not? And when he took him to the nearest inn and paid for his lodging until he was well, he showed grace. His mercy relieved the pain. His grace provided the healing. How is God working in your life right now to minister this very, very thing right here. How is He doing that? This is what God does through His Word, through the power of His Spirit in our life. Because this is His work. You won't find the world doing this. You won't. You won't find it. So how does mercy relate to justice? Now this can be tough, right? Because we think that, well, you know, there's this element where government or whatever, people kind of need to get what they deserve. You know, if you don't, there's no order and everything always falls apart. So how do they relate? They're not incompatible with each other, mercy and justice. Understand first off that God does not show mercy without punishing sin. Do you agree with that? He doesn't show mercy without punishing sin. 
and to offer mercy without punishment would negate His justice. It would. So we look closely at His Word and what He says about that. Mercy that ignores sin is a false mercy. Now this is the message that's so difficult for us to get across to the world. That in confrontation, helping someone see, as we said, as I said earlier, what their greatest need is may not be the immediate problem that you've been able to intervene on. All right, now that's not their greatest need. In fact, their problem may be a result of their sinfulness. And we say it and we believe it and we hold to it that there is nothing more loving that we can do for someone, is there? Can you think of someone to help someone deal with this? To respond and to seek? To be open to the mercy of God in their life and literally changed? And that's what we teach and that's what we preach and that's what we know works. Unrighteous, listen, remember this phrase, unrighteous sentimentality. That's where people get hung up. A sentimentality, an emotional response. You know, we might even call it a loving response, kind of hinders us from dealing with an issue, holding people accountable. It's considered to be, you know, like holier than thou or something on our part. Well, who are you to tell me? Who are you? Okay, that's what you deal with, you know, with the lost world. And you have to be prepared to tell them, look, you'll never get where you need to be unless you embrace your own sin. You won't do it. I mean, this is what His Steps, you know, the residence program was all about. Helping them deal with the real problem. And that remains... That's what those first four Beatitudes were about. Getting to that point in their life. Unrighteous sentimentality is neither justice or mercy. It's not. It will not bring about what responding to the the mercy of God will bring about in our life. It won't do that. Not, Not this unrighteous sentimentality. Just too loving. It's like, it's like a parent who, who won't discipline their child because they just love them so much. It just hurts. I'm not, you know, he ran out in the road. Okay, that's all right. But, you know, I'm not going to spank him. Well, would you feel that way about it if he gets bumped by a car or worse? We do what we know we have to do. We have to have a clear understanding. And when we go and we're, in it, we're in, involved in someone's life trying to help them see their sin, we have to have a real clear picture of this. That this is the only thing that will result in change. Get to the real problem. Get to the real problem. Call it what it is and seek the mercy of God. And He'll pour out His mercy and then He'll pour out His grace. Accountability and confrontation are considered unloving and unkind. And they can be, even in the church. If your timing's off, if you're ill-motivated, you're wrongly motivated, if you're not spiritually prepared, and the look on your face is not really sending the message that you want to send, it's an effort, isn't it? It's an effort to involve yourselves in these types of issues with others. 
Only the Holy Spirit can make us what we need to be during those times, can literally prepare us, give us the words, give us all that we need to truly represent the Word of God in a situation. In every true act of mercy, I like this, someone pays price. You believe that? In every true act of mercy, somebody pays a price. Somebody's made it possible somewhere, right? We certainly know that's true regarding our own salvation. It's not like justice gets thrown to the wayside. Somebody paid the price. And in our interactions with others, you may be paying the price. It's going to cost your day. It's going to reach into your pocketbook. It's going to take your time. It's going to put you on your knees so that you can receive mercy just to deal with it. That you won't yield. You won't yield to faithlessness. Well, this, is, this is the essence of what, what we're about in our Christian life. It's a picture of a Christian yielding to the power and presence of God. It's not just words. It's reality. It's what God is doing through the truth of His Word. It's a wonderful thing to expect to enter the sphere of God's mercy without repenting from our sins is but wishful thinking. And for the church to offer hope of God's mercy apart from repentance. Repentance from sin is to offer false hope through a false gospel. God help us to never depart from that truth. Sins must be dealt with. Sin as a whole must be dealt with. Had some folks come, visitors to church here. Melissa and I did one time that we'd invited. They came and the person who come <clears throat> brought their daughter. And I was asking, how did, how did you like it? What did you say? I said, no, tell me. Tell me, how did you like the church? Oh, it, was, it was good. I, I enjoyed the teaching. How about your daughter? And didn't get a response. I said, well, well, tell me what she thinks. She said, well, she says, it's more the same. I think I shared this with you. She said, it's just somebody tell me how bad I am. And I want to tell you, on that given day, that was pretty slight. Yep. But isn't it interesting that that was all that was remembered? You know, it's just like people said, you mean I'm not good? You mean there's something wrong with me? Is that what church is about? Say it. Yes, <laughs> to a point, to a point. Don't you wish that the world could just see the liberty that flows, the liberty that flows out of this realization that, God, I need mercy in my life. I'm talking about before holy and righteous God, whom I will stand before one day, and even in this life right now, in trying to serve Him. I need God's mercy. Not just to be effective, but now I'm being attacked. There's spiritual warfare going on. You know, now I'm the, spiritually I'm the squeaky wheel. I'm getting the attention. Okay. There are things, you know, I don't need all this mess in my life right now because I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to serve and I truly want to. And yet I find obstacles around every corner. Paul said, when I would do good, evil is present with me. There is a battle going on. And we need His mercy and His grace every day. We don't know what's laid up out there against this fellowship right now that's moving forward, that's growing 
that's staying with the Word of God, that's listening to faithful teaching about the church, that our church can take a, as a whole can sit on a rock as I often say and say, okay, how are we doing as a church? Joel keeps asking us, if Christ was here and He was looking at our church, what would He say? This is critical. As we seek to move forward for the sake of the Gospel, for the sake of ministry, it's critical. And we need to be aware of it. Each and every day as we pray and ask God to intervene and to show us the direction, to bestow His mercy upon us and His grace so that we can be strong. Well, that's how it relates to justice. The merciful man in Proverbs, it says, does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. Well, thanks for that. That's pretty basic, but you know, we need to remember that. There is consequences or rather there are consequences proverbs eleven, seventeen is what i read to you it shows in every aspect of our life even through this in here a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast <laughs> are you kidding me the way we treat animals yes but the compassion of the wicked is cruel it's talking about something that's either in us or not in us right and how it manifests itself the depraved mind is unmerciful. And it can justify itself. Ah, she got what she deserved. Oh, really? You're the judge of that? You're the determiner of that? You know, you got to watch that in law enforcement. you got to really watch that. Because you see things that just tear you up. The way children get treated sometimes and um, other things that I don't want to talk about. But you have to be careful with that. Shared with you one time in internal affairs, I'll share it again. A lady who was just, oh, she was killing me because she was making up all these lies. She's suing the county. Then, when that didn't work, then she got on me and my partner and the way we were handling the investigation. And I'll be honest with you, I got to a point where I said, man, when she needs a dose of her own medicine. And she did. That's what she needed. It would have been totally deserved. But one time she got a dose of her own medicine. It wasn't anything I did. And just to be honest with you, in my heart, I rejoiced in that. I rejoiced in it. And God got my attention over that. Proverbs talks about that in different places. I think it's in verse 24, I believe. But it says you don't rejoice in the downfall of an enemy. God's got to keep us. He's got to keep us close to this reality about our own need for mercy. We never have a right to go there. Never. Can't do it. And it's really, it's a, it's, a bad, it's a bad sign if we can go there and enjoy that. We don't want that. No, we want to understand always and live in that sphere of understanding of what God has done for us. You know, there as it says, a human proverb, but by the grace of God go I. Were it not for God and His mercy and His grace. Five minutes. Well, let's see what I can do here. In James 2.13, James shares with us that judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Over judgment. He's talking about in that day when we stand there and we're judged. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Not, and it's not a reflection on God's mercy. In part it is. 
it's more specific to the fact that because we have received that mercy, then our example in our life, our, the way we're bent, if you will, is to be merciful. And it will be obvious. It will be obvious in the day of judgment. The person whose life is characterized by mercy is ready for the day of judgment and will escape all the charges that strict justice might bring against him or her because by showing mercy to others, he gives, he gives genuine evidence of having received God's mercy. Commentary there on, the, on this verse from James 2.13. So where does this mercy come from? Well, without a doubt, it's a gift of God. It goes without saying. We can give mercy only when we receive mercy. That should be made clear. And it will always require on our part, always, it will always require humility, true humility. It will always require repentance on our part. Get the beam out of your own eye first. It will always require surrender. Not doing something your way, but God's way and God's timing with God's provision. And lastly, holiness. Because that's the result. We're to be holy. We're to strive, if you will, for holiness. That will be our goal. We'll never get there. Anything that is accomplished, if someone else can look at our life and say, guys, he's just a holy guy. He's a holy lady. It's always a manifestation of the power and presence of Christ. <laughs> never anything about us as an individual. Nothing at all. Donald Barnhouse, if you've ever read him, a quote from him as we get to the end here. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, listen to this, all the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. And God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, I think he's talking about Christians here, is the equivalent of asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. Now, I hear what he's saying. All the mercy that God ever will have on man has already been had when Christ died. And he's talking about provision. That is the totality of mercy. I mean, it's the most merciful thing that's ever been done. That Christ paid the sin debt of everyone who would ever believe. And it's kind of begging the question, well, what else is there? There couldn't, he says, there could not be any more, any more mercy. The fountain is now opened and it is flowing and it continues to flow freely. Just an encouraging statement about what God has provided for us. So how do we practice mercy? This is the last part. Well, we do it by our physical acts. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, You shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. You shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need. And whatever... He lacks, talking about our attitude toward helping others. And our next uh, point that we make here, because it's manifested in our attitudes, no grudges, no resentments, not capitalizing on the failure and weaknesses of others, if you will, not publicizing another person's sins for personal benefit, not being vindictive, not being heartless, not being indifferent, 
That's a tough one, right? Especially in intense situations. When we feel like we're just at the end of our rope, emotionally, physically, and you throw in there situations where you constantly give, 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 and it seems like you never get anything back, and and at the times that you do receive appreciation or maybe you see some change in a person, it's short-lived, so you know that, well, it's not going to last. We have to plead with God for His mercy, for the power of His Spirit to take root in a person's life and to make a true change to meet that need in a very true, viable way that will always be the work of Christ, not us. Mercy is to be shown spiritually. Well, yeah. How so? We grieve for lost souls and have great concern for the lost. We're to show mercy in confrontation. We're to show mercy in praying for others. The way we pray about them. We are to show mercy by proclaiming simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the result? Well, he says we'll obtain mercy or we will receive mercy. Why? Because it is the evidence of a person who has themselves been to, that, to the cross. They've, they've, they've been to the point of greatest need in their own life and they've responded for the mercy and the grace of God. Christ would remind us in Matthew 6, we'll get to in a few months. <laughs> For if you forgive men of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's not talking about that here. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Again, not eternal, but, but temporal. He's talking about being in right standing before God. We we reach out to Him and we respond. So I close with this. It is the realization of our lost and helpless condition knowing full well that we were helpless, unrighteous, poor in spirit, loaded with sins, wretched and doomed, and yet meek before Almighty God. We've studied that, have we not? Our hunger and thirst, which He has provided, has been bestowed. A great mercy from His Gracious hand, He gets all the honor and glory. With all that true in our life, and I trust that it is, how can we not be dominated by such a love and as a result show mercy to others?